Friends, we are in a series um, that we uh, are kicking off today called uh, More Than a Manger. Um, I'm excited for this series. Uh, Next week begins the first Sunday of Advent, but we're beginning our Advent series today, and we're going to be walking through the next four weeks. Uh, We're going to be walking through Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. This is the time you can pull out your Bible. We're going to read through this. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the the seat rack in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at home, that Bible is yours. Grab a pen, put your name in it. We want you to take those if you need a Bible. Um, in those Bibles, we're going to be on page 581, reading through Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. And because we believe that um, this is God's word, that as we surrender to God, we submit to his word out of reverence and respect to God's word, would you please stand with me as I read from Isaiah 61, 1 through 4? It reads this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Thanks, Benjamin. Good morning, Flourishing Grace. How are we doing? Wow, way more lively than the 915. I'll give you that, 11 o'clock. Uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Josh Knight, pastor of Preaching and Vision. For those of you who are brand new or maybe you were here last week, I was gone uh, last Sunday, and it's good to be back with you guys uh, this week. As we, as Benjamin said, men, as we launch into our Advent series here at Flourishing Grace, which is always an exciting time for us. We take Advent really, really seriously here at Flourishing Grace. And some of you are, are familiar with that, what, with what Advent is. Um, Advent, uh, it comes from a Latin term, Adventus, which means arrival or coming, the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. Um, some of you guys grew up in homes in an Orthodox Christian family that was, that, that was passionate about Advent, that every year you would... Um, do things with your parents um, every single night during those four weeks leading up to Christmas um, to, to set your heart, to set your mind on man, the coming of Jesus and all that that means. Uh, others of you didn't grow up going to church at all. And so you're like, what is, what is Advent? What does that mean? Some of you guys grew up going to church that didn't, didn't recognize Advent and didn't talk much about Advent. And you're like, isn't that some sort of like Catholic thing? Are we Catholic now? No, we're not. No, it's not a Catholic thing, right? This is something that's been around for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, Christians have been setting aside these four weeks leading up to um, Christmas to prepare themselves because we realize, I mean, we are not, we are not a strong people when it comes to I mean, discipline and, and our ability to kind of sit every single day, be fully, faithfully committed to Jesus in every single way. I mean, we need reminders throughout the year, kind of times where we kind of hit a hard reset. And say, let, let us focus in once again. Let us be reminded once again of what Jesus has done for us. And that's what Advent is really all about. And this year, we're starting a week early. Today is not the first Sunday of Advent. Whew, 
All right? So you still have a week to prepare. And the reality is, is that for those of us who are going to take this season seriously, you need some time to prepare for this, which, I'm, which is why I'm actually really stoked. I'm glad that we are getting into this a week early so that you have time to prepare and really ask the question, man, what is the vision of the next month of your life when it comes to your faith? What does it look like? What's the next month of your life going to look like spiritually for you as an individual or maybe for your household, for those of you who are married and you have kids? Like, what is the next month going to look like for us spiritually as a family? Here's the reality. I mean, every single one of you over the next month, you are going to be pulled in a million different directions. You know this because it happens every single year. There's going to be more expectations on you over the next four weeks than there are normally. At work, there's more expectations, Right? There's Christmas parties and Christmas uh, celebrations and uh, stupid white elephant gift things and ugly sweater parties. Like all these things, people are, you're getting invitations now, come to this thing, do this thing. There's people that you've got to buy gifts for and plan things around, whether that's a coworker or a friend, that, uh, neighbor gifts, which is like a weird Utah thing. If you're, if you're new to Utah, get ready for it, okay? You're going to get a lot of gifts on your front door, okay? At least in my neighborhood, that's how it is. When we moved here from Chicago, nobody in my neighborhood has been giving me a gift in Chicago, right? If I'm lucky, like, my car is still there in the morning. Like, that's my gift, okay? Um, but here in Utah, man, my neighbors are, like, baking me, like, homemade baked goods and all this weird stuff. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, let's do this every year. Um, I got some funny neighbor gift stories, but we'll save that for another day. What is the vision of your life over the next few weeks? How are you going to slow down rather than speed up? What will you do daily? What's your daily routine spiritually going to be over the next few weeks as you lean into Advent? How will you mark your days? What are, what are some things you're going to do in your home to, to physically signify the days of Advent leading up to Christmas, building the sense of anticipation in your heart and in your children? Who's going to hold you accountable during this time? Who have you asked in? Who'd be invited in to say, I mean, I need you to hold me accountable during this season to, to keep these things front and center, to not allow the things of the world to diminish, right, the things that I've said, this is the vision of my life this month, right? There's so many things that are going to vie for that. And I'm into all those things. I love it. I love um, the, the season of Christmas and going and doing all of the crazy things. There's a few things I don't like. My wife can tell you about those things later. I don't know if you've ever been to the Ogden Christmas Village. It's don't go. It's don't go, okay? <laughs> Boo is right. Boo is right. It's a, it's a contention point in our household. Uh, I don't know where I was going with any of this. This was not a part of my sermon at all. I want to challenge you to set a goal to just be with Jesus this month. And that looks like daily engaging in the Word, right? We have Advent resources for you out there in the lobby. Uh, those He Reads Truth and She Reads Truth Advent devotionals. We have, there's one for men, one for women. They are aesthetically gorgeous. They're $20 each, and we're taking a loss on them because we just want to get them in your hands. We're like, man, we want to get something in your hands that you can do every single day. There's one for families that's only $5. There's a $5 Advent devotional for families uh, out there. We want to get it in your hands so that every day you're doing something to just be with Jesus. Our prayer room, our prayer room here at Flourishing Grace is open um, every single day, Monday through Thursday, uh, during the Advent season. We would love for you to come and slow yourself down and just be with Jesus. What are you going to do? What's your plan? What's your strategy to slow yourself down and to be with Jesus this Advent season. 
I believe that God wants to do a great work in you as an individual and us as a church. But we must be a people who are willing to fight for that because the world's got a different plan for you, okay? And so let us be a people who seek to be with Jesus in a unique and special way over the next 29 days here at Flourishing Grace. Now, why Isaiah 61? Why are we leaning into Isaiah 61? Isaiah 61 is what's known as the last of the servant songs. It's a prophetic, uh, it's a prophetic text about the coming Messiah, this coming servant king who's going to come and restore Israel. And the first few lines are first person. It's the Messiah himself speaking this prophetic word into what he's going to be like. And, and what happens in, in the church for Christians so often around the holidays is that we focus in on kind of the birth narrative of Jesus, which is good and right. It's a story that's meant to be told and retold and retold again and again and again, right? But it becomes this uh, about um, Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph and a donkey and some shepherds and the angels and a, and a wise man and a star and a manger. And, and I want to make the case, man, if that's all it is, it's nothing. If that's all it is, it's nothing. It's a great story. But there's so much more than a manger. And I think that Isaiah 61 kind of illuminates that for us. It says in the, in the advent of Jesus, in the coming of Jesus, there's so much more for you. There's so much more than just a cute story. And so I want us to lay hold of that this month. To kind of be awakened to that and say, man, what might Jesus reveal to us? Most of us have only scratched the surface of what Jesus brought when he came for us. I want us to plumb the depths of that this month as we look at Isaiah 61. And so I'm going to pray to that end, and we'll begin to get into it. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning, and I ask that you would convict us today, that you would stir in us today a desire to be with you this month, more than we want lights and presence, and, and holiday cheer, and singing, and all of those great things. But we want you more than we want any of that. Would you warn us this morning that if we are not careful, if we are not diligent, we will not find you, we will be distracted by all of those things. We will rush through the season and we will wake up in January and it will all be for naught. And so would you draw us near to yourself? Would you open our eyes? Would you give us a vision for these next few weeks as we seek you and you alone? We pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, friends. Well, every once in a while, every once in a while, someone comes along that just like changes the game, right? Let me ask you a question. Who's the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Oh, okay, easy. Yeah, you, don't even, you weren't even born yet. All right, uh, Michael Jordan, clearly the greatest of all time. And here's, and here's the thing. You don't have to look at any of the stats or any of that stuff. All you have to know is, I mean, who changed the game more? There would be no LeBron James if it wasn't for Michael Jordan. And you guys, know, like, I'm, I know I'm from Chicago and so I'm biased. But it's true. He transformed the sport. He transformed the game. He did. And every once in a while, somebody comes along and they raise the game for everybody else. Right? It's like the, it's a whole four-minute mile in the 1950s. Everybody said, it's not possible. No one's ever going to run a mile in less than four minutes until somebody did. And now they're shattering it. They're crushing it. 
Every great runner runs a mile in less than four minutes, which is not me. I'm not a great runner. I can't even come close to that. I don't even know if I can run it in less than 20 minutes. Okay, listen, it's, it's, every once in a while somebody comes along and they do something that is impossible, and then it becomes possible, whether it's landing on the moon or climbing the nose, like El Cap, right? Uh, Alex Honnold and Tommy Conwell climbed the nose on El Cap a couple years ago in less than two hours. It takes most people five to seven days. They did it in less than two hours. And now all these guys are going out there and they're climbing it in a day. It's like, how? It's like this thing that was once impossible is now just like, everybody does it. Everybody, everybody's doing it. It's like, how is that? Every once in a while, somebody comes along and they just change everything. And then everybody, everybody else says, oh, that's possible. We can, we can do that too. And I would say that no one, no one has ever done this the way that Jesus did this. Jesus comes more than a manger, bringing all of these things, living a completely different life, and transforms everything. And the world has never been the same. And you're going to see that over the next few weeks. And the world has been transformed for the past 2,000 years. It was a hard shift in the coming of Jesus. Because it's not just a, a kid born. I mean, listen, a lot of people have been born poor. And a lot of people have even been born in a barn. It's true. It's, it's, it's a real thing. It's more than that, though. No one's ever been like Jesus. No one's ever brought as much transformation and revolution to the world as he's brought. I mean, systems of government and philosophies more have been built on his teachings than anyone else in the history of the world. He's been on the cover of more magazines and more books have been written about him than anybody ever who's ever lived. He has transformed the way we live in so many different ways. We're going to see a few of them this morning. This morning, we're just going to look, we're going to look at just the first few lines of Isaiah 61. The first half of the first verse That's all we're going to look at this morning. It's that very first line. It says this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Just in that little line, there is so much that Jesus has done that has transformed us, transformed the world that we live into. And when Jesus preaches his first sermon, first sermon he ever preaches, okay, what text does he choose? What passage of Scripture does he choose to preach from? Anybody know? It's not a trick question. Isaiah 61. That's right. Yeah, he chooses Isaiah 61. This passage that is where the Messiah is speaking first person, talking about all the things the Messiah is going to do when he comes and what's he going to be like. And Jesus famously, he, he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back over to the person, he sits down to teach, because in that day they would sit to teach. He sits back down to teach, he begins to teach, and the people marvel at what he says, and then famously he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. As you heard me teach these words to you, as you heard me read these words to you, today this scripture, this prophecy has become true. It's become fulfilled as you heard it. And the people marveled at this. They're blown away by it. He began to change the game, to transform everything that they'd ever known. And today we're going to look at three things in that first half of the first verse. Just three things. Over the next few weeks, we'll dive deeper and deeper and deeper into it. But I want you to begin to consider, begin to think about as you wade into the Advent season, I want you to begin to consider the things that Jesus has brought in his coming. More than a manger, 
so much he has brought. First is this. The one in the manger is empowered supernaturally. He's empowered supernaturally. He says in Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. In a unique way, more than anyone who had ever been. Right, the Spirit of the Lord I mean, shows up many times in the Old Testament, uh, people's lives. But for Jesus, it was a unique, unique um, presence of the Spirit of God. It was upon him. It was upon him. Right, it famously, at the baptism of Jesus, right? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, he comes up out of the Jordan River, and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, a visual representation of the fulfilling of this prophecy. And God speaks from heaven. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He changes the game. Listen, I have had the privilege of baptizing a lot of people. Many people in this room I've gotten to baptize. I've been able to watch even more people be baptized. It's a sweet and incredible thing. All over the world I've seen people be baptized. But I've never seen anyone come up out of the water and the Spirit of God descend like a dove upon them. Like it just never happened. Listen, I know for many of you, your parents told you at a young age, you are special, you are unique, you, no one's as smart as you, you are the best that there is. But the truth is, we're pretty average like, I love you. We're just average. Like, I'm just an average guy, average build, average size, average talent. Like, I just average. Listen, Jesus transforms the game. The spirit of the Lord God was upon him in a way that it had never been. He had never been upon anyone who had ever lived. He brings this unique power everywhere he goes in his ministry in that same passage in Luke 4, when he preaches his first sermon, Luke 4, 21, it reads this way, as he sits down, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He's in his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth is known as a place where people there, they're not that smart. They're not that great. They're below average. And they're marveling, like, wait, isn't this guy from here? Like, we know his dad, right? Like, how is this possible? How can he speak this way? How can he be so smart? How can he reveal these things? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, people marvel as well. Matthew 7, 28, 29 reads this way. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. They're blown away by this. They can't figure it out. No one has ever taught the way that Jesus taught. The Spirit of the Lord God was upon him. Again and again and again, we see Jesus do things that no one else had ever done. The Spirit of the Lord God was upon him. And yet, and yet, it didn't stay just with him. He changed the game. He elevated it for everybody else, right? It was, in, it was in, at Pentecost in Acts when there's another visual representation of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon someone else, the early followers of Jesus. Jesus on the cross cleanses us of our unrighteousness. And once again, the Spirit of the Lord can also come upon those who are righteous, who have been made righteous by the blood of Christ and can be filled with the Spirit. And so now, now, unlike before Jesus, for the past 2,000 years, we have people who are filled with spiritual gifts and spiritual fruits and have brought those things into this earth. The earth has been transformed by a renewed people, 
by a people who are filled with the Spirit of God. He is upon us who are in Christ. He lives and dwells within us who are in Christ because of what Jesus has done. Jesus changed the game for all of us. The advent of Jesus bringing the presence of the Spirit of God to you and to me in a unique and special way. The one in the manger was empowered supernaturally and has supernaturally empowered us to go, therefore, and to make disciples. You are supernaturally empowered because of what Jesus brought in his coming. Second is this. The one in the manger has a special anointing to bring good news. This is why Jesus came. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. There's a special anointing on his life to bring good news. This is what Jesus did. He is the anointed one. Anybody know what the word Messiah means? Give you a hint, I just told you. The anointed one. He is the anointed one. God has anointed him to bring the good news, the gospel. He is the anointed one, anointed to bring gospel. The Messiah bringing the gospel. This is what Isaiah 61, the very first half of the first verse is saying. This is who Jesus is. When he rolls up the scroll and he hands it over and he teaches the people, he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what I've come to do. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah, and I've come to bring the gospel, the good news. It's why I'm here. Jesus said this regularly throughout his ministry. He said in Luke 4, uh, 42, he said, And when, when the, it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. And they would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. To other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus, you want to know why I came? I came as an anointed one, the Messiah, to bring the good news, the gospel. That's why I'm here. And he went from town to town to town, bringing the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. If you've been around Flourishing Grace, you know the good news of the kingdom. One of our pursuits at Flourishing Grace, we have five pursuits. One pursuit is the pursuit of the kingdom. And you've heard us talk about it again and again and again. The gospel, the gospel in its simplest form is this. Jesus became king. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Jesus became king, and he came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Everywhere he went, he talked about the good news of the kingdom. That there once was a kingdom that God has established. Genesis 1 and 2, God establishes a kingdom over the entire cosmos. He is the ruler and reigner of all things. He forms a people who will, who will worship him as a good and benevolent king. A king who will provide for their every need. And yet his authority and his kingdom was usurped. By a wicked and tyrannical prince, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, Satan. He fools the people into believing that there's something greater, that there's, there's someone better, that, that God is withholding from them, that if they would just find this other thing, this better thing, then they would be fulfilled. And that's been the lie from the beginning. 
from then on, every single one of us in this room have believed that there's something out there that's going to fulfill us, that God won't fulfill in us, that Jesus won't fulfill this thing. I need to find this thing to fulfill me. We're all chasing lesser kingdoms. And Jesus comes ushering in a new way, a restored kingdom. He says, I will, I will crush the serpent. I, I will lift the curse. I will become king. And Jesus goes to the cross, and the whole entirety of the curse of sin and death is laid upon him. He bears it to the cross. Your curse is laid on him. He dies in your place. The death that you deserve, he dies in your place. Removing the curse from you, paying the penalty for the curse, he becomes the propitiation for your sins. He pays for it all in his perfect spotlessness. God says that is an acceptable sacrifice. You could never be that. But Jesus has become that in your place. He says, come. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take it upon you. Come be in my kingdom. Let me become your benevolent king once again. Let me restore the goodness of the kingdom once and for all. The kingdom has been restored. And it is being restored actively right now. The one in the manger is brought Good news. He has changed the game for us. He's changed the game of the cosmos. He's removed the curse of sin and death. There's never been anyone like him. The last thing is this. The one in the manger will care for the poor. The one in the manger will care for the poor. In a supernatural way, Jesus changes the game for the poor. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, to bring the gospel to the poor. To the poor. What does this mean? I love uh, John the Baptist. At the end of John the Baptist's life, he's, he's in a prison cell. He knows that he is going to be executed. He knows that this is probably the end for him. He sends his disciples to Jesus he says, I need you to ask him a question. I need you to look him in the eye and say, are you the one? Like, are you, are you really the one? I've given my whole life to this. I've given my whole life to proclaiming that you are the one, that you're the, I believe you're the one, but I'm questioning, are you the one? I, I, like, are you really him? And I love Jesus' response to the disciples. He, Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 7, he says this, he says, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John knows the prophecies of the Messiah. He has given his life to studying what the Messiah is going to be like and what he's going to do. And Jesus says, just go tell John. Everything you've seen. The poor have good news preached to them. I'm the one, John. I'm here. I'm doing all the things that the Messiah has promised to do. I'm bringing good news to the poor. And we're people that take this for granted. right? When you drive around any city in, in the West, and when I say the West, I mean uh, the Western part of the globe. right? Any city in the West, th there are resources for the poor. And there, there are hospitals for the sick. There are kitchens for the hungry. 
There are shelters for those who do not have a home. There are resources. There are families, foster and adoption families for, for those who do not have parents. All of these resources are things that we just assume should be that way. Of course, they're, of course yeah, that's their, that's their right, we would say. That's, that's how they should be treated, we say. That's, that's how it is. But it has not always been that way. I said at the beginning, and I've said all the way through, man, Jesus changed the game. Jesus changed the game when it came to the poor. No, no one, no religious leader in Jesus' day cared for the poor the way Jesus cared for the poor. Jesus created a whole new people that revolutionized the way that we engage the poor. In early Rome, it was common practice, kind of a normal thing. If you, did not, if you, had, a, if you had a child and you didn't want that child anymore... You just put the child outside. And you said, well, the gods will do what the gods are going to do. The child, you know, if they want the child to live, the child will live. If they don't, then he won't. It was acceptable. It was called exposure. You just leave the child outside to die. It was just what you did when you didn't want the child. Until Christians came along. And Christians who had been taught this new way of the kingdom by Jesus... This new sense of identity in Christ and this new sense of worth bestowed upon them by God. And seeing that every human being is created in God's image. They said, you can't do that. That's not okay. And so they went and they collected the children. And they nursed them and they raised them. And they gave them life. When diseases would come upon the city um, in, in Rome and even, even beyond Rome, right? a plague came upon Rome, the plague of, of Antonius, the plague of Antonius, uh, and everybody in Rome flees the city because no way, we're not going to engage with the sick. I don't want to become sick myself. Everybody leaves, except for the Christians. The Christians stay to care for those who are sick, to make sure that they have food and water, that they are cared for and loved. It's believed that the first actual real hospital was established by a person known as St. Basil the Great. Basil the Great created the first hospital for those who were poor and in need of help. He created a hospital where they could come and receive medical care and attention. The, the, the hungry, they, there, was no, there was no food shelter, food bank for the hungry, but the Christians created what's known as the love feast. Every single week, they would pool all of the resources and bring all the food to one person's house. And the entire village could come out and they could eat. And the poor could eat and have their fill. And they could take the leftovers with them. And they would provide for them for the week. Jesus revolutionized the way the poor are treated. He changed the game in so, so many ways. Jesus established a kingdom that was for the poor. He says, my, my kingdom is not for the rich alone. My kingdom is for anyone and everyone to come and be cared for and to be loved. All of this was in the manger. God's plan to reorient a sinful wor world marred and marked by selfishness and greed and lack of empathy. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus brings help for the poor in the manger. But not just the physically poor, the poor according to our earthly standards, but the spiritually poor. The first line of the Sermon on the Mount are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus brings blessing to those who are spiritually poor. He came to bring the good news of the kingdom to the spiritually poor as well. Those who could not become sinless on their own. Those who could not become righteous under their own strength or by their own merit. 
For those who were poor in spirit, Jesus came. He was anointed to bring the gospel, the good news, to the poor, the poor in spirit. The good news that God had made a way for them to be cleansed of all of their unrighteousness, for their sin to be removed as far as the east is from the west, for them to once again be become, become to God without fear, without, without fear of men. Is God, going to, is God going to be angry with me because of what I've done? No, to be able to come to God with boldness, to, to enter into his presence with joy in their hearts as we have done this morning. Jesus changes the game. He removes our sin on the cross. He removes death from us. He makes a way for us to enter into eternal life as he dies in our place and then raises from the dead, declaring, man, I will always, always, always be standing before God the Father, interceding on your behalf. You can always draw near because God loves you and he receives you as a spotless and blameless child of God if you are in Christ. If you've declared him as king, you have been cleansed. From all of your unrighteousness, you are free to come before God at any time and in any way. There is more than a manger. There's a king, a supernatural, spirit-filled, anointed one who has come for the poor and for the broken. So my hope over the next few weeks is that we would just fix our gaze on him. That we would truly long to just be with Jesus. And as I said at the beginning of all of this, it's not going to come natural. It's not going to come easy for you. It's just not. But if you want to discover all that there is in the Advent season, you've got to make space in your life this month. You've got to plan around it. You've got to think, man, how am I going to... How am I, how are I going to instill this in my home and in my marriage and in my kids? Like, well, how are we, what's it going to look like? How are we going to engage this month? How will you engage the poor this month? How will you put on the kingdom of God and say, man, I believe that what came in the manger was one who cared for the poor and has called his people to care for the poor. This is why, man, at Flourishing Grace, this is why every Advent season we find ways to help you engage with the poor. So my binger was up here earlier with a laundry basket saying, man, man we found a, a, a homeless teen center in our backyard that we can engage in. We need 60 families that would prepare one of these baskets. But what if it's beyond that? What if it's something, man, what does it look like? Maybe you roll up your sleeves and say, man, I want to engage in that teen center on a regular basis. I, I want to start serving there during the week, in the new year, in January, in February. I, I, want, to, I want to lean in and I want to take seriously the call to, to care for the poor. Because I believe that there was more than in the manger than simply a newborn baby. There's a king who came to proclaim good news to the poor. It's called its people to do the same. How are you going to care for the spiritually poor over the next 29 days? Man, there's, there's never a time like Advent where you, it's acceptable to kind of talk about spiritual things. So who's, who's your one? Who's the person that lives here, that lives nearby, that you see on a regular basis, that you interact with, that doesn't know Jesus yet? Have you begun to talk to them? Are you, are you beginning to engage with them? Have you texted them over Thanksgiving? Are you talking to them about coming to Christmas Eve? Have you invited them to come and to hear the gospel on Christmas Eve? There's never a time like this 
sweet moment, a sweet season. And there is an anointing on your life to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. After this gathering, we have an info meeting for those who want to come with us to India next year. Maybe that's it. Maybe you're like, man, let's just go. Let's just put it all on the table. Man, I want to go to India and I want to proclaim good news to the poor there. Making disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, teaching them to become a people who practice the way of Jesus. Might you be so near to Jesus over the next 29 days that you can't help but become like Jesus. He has changed the game for you, man. And my hope and my prayer is that your game would be raised over the next few weeks as we fix our gaze on him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you. And I pray that you just clear all the clutter out of our life. That we just see you. Just long to be with you. And I pray that our prayer room would just be filled all month long with people who are just making space in their day to just be with you. Marking this season. That this would be a, a season that we look back on for the rest of our lives and say, man, God did a work in me. 2023, during Advent, I've never been so near to Jesus. Would you convict us? Would you stir us? Would you inspire us? Would the way of Jesus be the way of flourishing grace as we walk in the way of your kingdom? Praise the thing in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.